ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today we have a fantastic guest. It's Asia Matos, the founder of Demand Maven. And we're going to talk about how startups can get their first 100 customers. This episode is brought to you by Light Matter. Light Matter helps some of the world's fastest growing companies design and develop their software applications. Whether you don't yet need an in-house engineering team or you're busy growing the next unicorn and can't hire fast enough, there is an immense value in working with a group of experts like Light Matter. Check them out at lightmatter.com slash UI breakfast to learn more. Hey, Asia. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> We're so thrilled. We've been seeing each other online for ages and finally, finally get to connect here at the show. That's so great. <laughs> I've been a fan for such a long time. And so I can't even believe that this is real, that I'm here. This is awesome. <laughs> You've served as a consultant, literally like dozens of people from our ecosystem, and your name has been all over the place. Tell us more a bit about your background and what you do so that our listeners can get your vibes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I run a little consultancy called Demand Maven. And at Demand Maven, we work with early stage startups on getting to their very first growth milestones, whether that's the first 100 customers, which is what we're going to talk about today, or the first 10K MRR or even 100K in MRR. And my background is kind of, you know, it's always like, everyone always is like, oh, it's an interesting story. I don't know how interesting this is. But my background, I actually started out as an artist, like a fine artist. And that was my degree. And then after immediately realizing that there was very little chance of having a uh, stable career in that I dove headfirst into technology. And I actually started out as marketing manager uh, at a technology consulting firm. So for five years uh, there, I ran and led a very small marketing department. But the the sales process was, I feel like, kind of an outlier. So it was like $1 to $2 million deal sizes were the different clients that we had. And it would take, on average, one to two years to close a deal. And uh, I think by my third or fourth year, I kind of realized that if I wanted to know what marketing campaigns were actually working, it was going to take me maybe like five more years of working in that firm to really understand. <laughs> so when I was thinking about, okay, well, where do I want to go next? I started thinking about, well, what is the total opposite of long sales cycle, client services, very big technology and implementation projects. And I was introduced to the startup world, to product, to 30, 30 days sales cycles, which was to me just completely night and day. And from there, I started working at just a few different companies. I'm based here in Atlanta, Georgia, but I got plugged into that technology in the startup scene and served as demand generation manager for an account-based marketing company here in Atlanta. And then after that, I went to a data integration platform uh, where I served as head of marketing. And I've worked in the B2B SaaS space and I believe about almost two years ago now, I decided to start my decided to start Demand Maven and work with early stage founders on meeting those growth goals. Because something that I learned was, uh, and I didn't realize that I was doing this, but I kind of became an expert on early stage because I was entering into companies who hadn't gotten to that 50k or 100k MRR mark, and I was basically helping them get there. 
And ever since then, I've had the opportunity to work with both B2B and B2C companies, almost all early stage SaaS, both bootstrapped and funded. And I've got to say, and this is going to like shock some people maybe, but got to say it's shockingly all the same challenges around acquisition, activation, and retention, just across the board growth. And this is really the stage that I'm extremely passionate about because I think that this is honest to me is the hardest stage, (laughs) really figuring out where you're going to go and how you're going to get there. And after that, it's really all about the traction part. So how do you manage people, grow the team, scale the team, figure out other growth opportunities? But I love early stage and and this is where I really love to be. It's interesting that you qualify early stage up to like 50K or 100K MRR, which is not just early. It's pretty much like an amazing goal for a lot of people I know. And I would say like early is like 5K MRR or something like that. (laughs) But uh, clearly we have a different understanding on that part. I completely agree in that. Yes, like that is also like very, very early stage. But but I find when thinking about the life cycle of a startup, the first five years, 10 years, especially if you're on the funded side, the first five years, just night and day looks completely different than the next five. I'm really interested in in companies that uh, both, I mean, they can be funded or bootstrapped. It doesn't really matter which, but I do really enjoy that getting them to that milestone that kind of gives them the breathing room that they need, whether that's to go raise it the next round or even just create something that is livable and cash flow positive. I think that's something else, too, that I'm really passionate about. In terms of like everyday activities, what do you do for your clients when they sign up for a gig? So typically, whenever I'm working with a company for the very first time, we almost always start with the very basic steps, which is we always start with customer research. And that is purely because the founder's guess is really as good as mine in terms of what's going to attract a customer. And in order for us to really truly understand not only who are we dealing with, like, but why do these people care about what it is that that they've purchased and that they're paying money for? And we can also uncover, of course, those acquisition channels and just other opportunities that maybe we're missing the mark from not just a marketing perspective, but overall go-to-market. That, that includes either customer success, support, sales, what other parts of the business there are. And after that, after we spend some considerable amount of time on that customer research portion and uncovering what those growth opportunities are, could also be activation opportunities, which of course is still part of growth. But after that, it's really prioritizing and defining what the strategy is going to be. And then from there, we start taking a look at the steps. Now, something that I very firmly believe in is for every single client, the process is the exact same, but the activities that we do are going to be different. There are some companies that I work with where it makes sense to invest in paid advertising right off the bat, but just based off of what kind of market they have, with where they are in their journey, their budget, et cetera, the customers that they're going after. And then for other other businesses, it makes much more sense to invest either in the foundational pieces. So things like the website, things like the product. And then even for others, it makes a lot more sense to focus on what I consider like, you know, free acquisition, where it really just takes your time. So things like speaking, appearing on podcasts or speaking on podcasts, or solidifying maybe some business or strategic partnerships. 
So the activities on a day-to-day, honestly, look completely different depending on which account I'm focused on. I could be writing content one day and designing a new onboarding email flow the next. And it also could be I'm interviewing customers and we're translating that into a campaign. I mean, it really, I hate to say it runs the gamut, but it really does depending on the kind of business that I'm working with. But I will say though, the process is extremely consistent. And every single time we identify a huge pain or a KPI that is kind of, you know, bleeding out, we focus and we align around fixing that and stopping the bleeding, of course, and then figuring out where do we want to go next. Is it the KPI of your customers or your customers' customers? Uh, The KPI of my customers. So let's say free trial to paid conversion rate is an absolute nightmare. Part of what I would come in and do is, well, let's unpack the reasons why that could be happening. What's really going on? Is it that maybe the product isn't making onboarding very clear, effective? It's not very efficient. Is it that we're attracting the wrong kinds of people? Is it both? It could also be that maybe the aha moment just isn't very clear as someone is, as a customer of the client, at least, as that customer is kind of going through the product. Maybe it's just not clear what the, what the product ultimately solves. Could be messaging. Uh, I mean, there's, there's so many things that could impact that one KPI. What I would be coming in and doing is figuring that out and um, offering solutions and then if it's in my wheelhouse, actually implementing that solution. As we're talking about the funnel, could you basically give us a recap of what a funnel is in your understanding and maybe give us some idea of rough KPI, rough conversion rates that happen on each stage that are considered normal? Of course, it's very it's going to be very abstract, but still, I think it's going to be helpful for our listeners. If you were to do research on what a typical funnel looks like, you're going to get all kinds of answers and with respect to the context that that funnel is in. Uh, so, for example, if you were to look at a uh, the funnel of like a B2B services company, like it's just going to look pretty different than maybe like a SaaS company. The funnel that I like to use is actually really, really, really close to what's called pirate metrics. And you're basically just looking at three to four, depending on how crazy you want to get, three to four different stages. You're looking at acquisition, activation, and retention. And then if you want to get extra, you can look at referrals, which is really that word of mouth layer after you've already gotten the paying customer. Acquisition is all about driving net new eyeballs, either to your website products, all the above. Activation is, uh, it can be considered a point of conversion. So maybe that's the free trial sign up or requesting the demo, either one. But after that, it's really turning them into that paying customer. And then retention is all about, well, once you've got the paying customer, you went through all the trouble of getting them, acquiring them, activating them, they're paying. Now you've got to retain them. So what, you know, there's all of the activities that go into retention. And then for some companies, and I actually find that this is really 100% of companies, (laughs) referral really becomes something important. Although I will say that in the early days, referral is something that um, I find most businesses... It's not that they're not ready to tackle that referral word of mouth piece, but it is ultimately after you've got happy paying customers, they're telling their friends and then that drives even more word of mouth. And that's and then it just becomes its own cycle. But it could also be in-app referral, um, like affiliate link kind of activities as well that comes from the product itself. But that's the most basic funnel that I like to leverage. You could get even deeper into that and look at top of the funnel, middle of the funnel and bottom of the funnel and 
And it's one of those things where it's like, well, a funnel is a funnel. But top of the funnel, we call it, we say tofu, mofu, bofu in the content marketing world. But, uh, and then in, also in the demand generation world, we we also look at that as bottom of the funnel could just be the point of, of acquisition and then everything above that. So before they actually come to your website and you know, learn about you and then actually convert everything before everything that happens before the conversion point is considered middle and then top. That I would say is the most basic funnel. And in terms of what we're looking at at any given time, so those those conversion rates and, and just you know overall stats, it really does depend on if course if you are freemium, free trial or demo. I find that most of what we're probably going to chat about is really on the on the free trial side, but it does depending on what you have from like a model perspective, it, that is going to kind of, you know, skew and impact what the numbers that I'm about to say. So keep just for context, this is really for free trial, self-service SaaS. This is not necessarily for like demos, although we could talk a little bit about that. And then freemium, I feel like is just on this other end of the spectrum from like a <laughs> what's considered normal. And I always freemium, I find absolutely fascinating. But from a free trial perspective, what I'm typically measuring at any given time is how much traffic are we driving to the website? From the website traffic, how many people are converting into a free trial? And is that a what I would consider a healthy number? So best-in-class websites are converting anywhere from 2 to 5% of total amount of traffic into net new free trials per month. There are some websites, though, that I personally consider outliers. There are some that get like 30% uh, traffic to free trial conversion rate, which usually it's because they're either extremely niche or their website and their messaging is just really bomb and or they just do a really good job of driving the right kinds of people to the website. So all of those things are absolutely going to contribute to that free trial conversion rate. If you're less than 1%, then it's likely because the website is not doing the absolute best job of communicating the value. It's also likely that maybe you're getting too much unqualified traffic. So it could be that. From a free trial to paid customer conversion rate. So this is kind of where we get into that activation piece. I'm usually looking for at least 10 to 15%. If you're in the 20 to 30%, you're you're likely killing it on the free trial to paying conversion rate. And again, a lot of the same things around you're maybe attracting too many people or maybe too many unqualified people that could absolutely bring down your free trial conversion rate. It could also just be that the product might not have maybe feature parity with competitors or the aha moment just isn't very clear in terms of what the pain solves. So we would be looking at onboarding at that point. Again, part of that activation piece. And then after you have the happy paying customer, hopefully we do at least, we're looking at retention and uh, and ultimately churn rate. So how many people are canceling their accounts or canceling their profiles every single month, month over month? I ideally like to stay underneath 5%. Some would even argue that 3% is really where you need to be. Just from like an overall retention perspective, I find in the early days, getting less than 5% is pretty challenging just from what I've seen, but it's not unheard of to get that 3%. So I will say three to 5% is ideal. If it's more than 5%, we've got to take a look at, you know, who's actually in the product. Are they getting value out of it? Why do they churn? Like, you know, what's going on? And oh, and I will, I will add on that all of these stats make sense for a no credit card required, like they don't have to opt in with a credit card to actually become a user. And then of course, a customer, there's so much research and just 
information about how those small things impact your overall funnel. Requiring a credit card will dramatically impact what you see all the way up to increasing or tripling even your churn. And you might also see like an incredible free trial to paid conversion rate, but it's just because sometimes people forget to cancel or forget to remove their credit card. That happens quite a lot. I would just throw caution to the wind there that these stats are really without the credit card required. But if you are requiring a credit card, you're going to see completely different numbers. That is so helpful. Uh, Literally, I've got just a lecture about all of that. That's amazing. (laughs) So maybe an update for the create up upfront because we have that at UserList. And uh, what is the traffic to free trial conversion rate in that regard? Because it feels like about 70 to 80% of people are dropping off because of the credit card requirement. So I guess the question is, how does a credit card required, how does that impact the trial to free trial conversion or excuse me, traffic to free trial? That's correct. You okay, yeah. it to be like two to five percent. And I've been like writing this down literally for ourselves. <laughs> so what would that look like if you are requiring a card of print? I have seen as low as like 0.004%, uh, which feels like unreal. <laughs> Usually you're looking at a less than 1% traffic to free trial conversion rate. And the best way to measure this is really on the the sign up flow itself. So we're talking a pretty high level like what that funnel would look like, but there's likely an actual like little micro conversion sequence that you're looking at whenever someone actually clicks on the button, goes to the page, fills out their information and then and then you take them through that that conversion funnel itself. I find that the best way to measure this would be what are you getting with the credit card required? And I've seen as low as 5 10% of people who actually complete just the overall conversion process. And then after removing credit card, you see conversion rates as high as like 60 to 80% where people actually complete the signup flow. Um, that, is, that is really where you see like the big differentials. On the website traffic to free trial uh, with a required credit card, I will say you're likely to see less than 1% conversion rate. And not knocking requiring credit cards, because I do think that for very specific products and markets, that can work. Uh, but I will say that for the majority and from what I've seen, it it really it really stifles the the potential that a product has to acquire those first 100 or in and beyond. Uh, it, it, it can really, it can slow you down, I think, in the early days, personally. <laughs> We've been treating it as sort of a first line of defense because we are in the email industry where we want to prevent potential people from sending potential spam <laughs> through our tool. So is it something that you'd say is uh, fair to have a credit friend? I do think that there are definitely use cases and places where that makes sense. I do like to take a look at just overall, what is the market used to? If the market is used to entering in a credit card for access to the platform. Um, So a great example of this is actually Ahrefs. They're an SEO tool. I'm sure at some point they've run enough experiments that they realized that offering a no credit card 
trial or at least not charging like a minimum fee just to get access to their platform. I think that they probably realized at some point that people were signing up, getting a bunch of free data and then bouncing. And then over time, they implemented a you've got to pay $7 just to even get access to the platform. So if I'm not mistaken, there is no real true free trial, but you will pay like a small fee to get access. I think that's brilliant. And it's purely because it's too easy for people to... If, you're, if your product is, is one of those things where people can get immense value out of it for free and then dip and bounce and you never hear from them again because they take advantage. That is where I would say, yeah, like require the credit card. That makes a ton of sense. Or charge like a small nominal fee that would be enough to deter most people. But yeah, I do think it absolutely works in some cases. And in Ahrefs cases, or case, I should say, it definitely works for them and makes total sense. And their competitors, I don't think do that at all. So I will say there's a, there's absolutely outliers. It really does depend on if someone gets an immense value, but it's also enough to maybe allow them maybe to take advantage. I think that that's where it makes a lot of sense. Going back to the actual 100 customers. So what is your general recommended strategy beyond fixing the the holes in that funnel that we've just discussed? What is the general approach that you preach if you were to give general advice to uh, SaaS founders who are listening to us? Okay, so I'm not gonna lie. The first like 20, even 10 customers, the first 10 to 25 customers. <laughs> yeah, first 10 customers. It is going to be such a gut feel activity. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, it is going to depend on just you as the founder or product owner. And who do you think is the most likely to see value out of the product? And in the very early days, even as you're building it and you're ready to actually start getting some either beta customers or what have you, beta testers, there's there are really two approaches. You could rack up a bunch of you know free beta testers and, and get them in the in the product. You could also just say, we're really gonna build this first. We might get a few people, but for the most part, we're just gonna go to market as is. Both of those approaches are absolutely legit. And I think that you can take advantage of whatever your situation is just based off of your product and your market. But at the end of the day, you are ultimately making a lot of guesses and you're validating those guesses as you get people into the product, you're learning about them and why why they choose you. It's also really important to remember that you're likely you're going to attract early adopters. You're not really you're likely not to attract the mainstream rest of the market quite yet. Your ultimate goal is just to really figure out who is emotionally attached to my product and who am I solving the biggest pain for today. And based off of that, I would say even just getting those first 10 to 25, it's probably going to be people that you already know. It's probably, I'm not saying it's going to be your mom, but it's going to be like your mom and like your cousin and like a few friends that you have, like a few colleagues from work, maybe other people that you might know overall in your network and you're kind of floating it by them. Your number one operative is really like, yes, you could focus on acquisition, but really you just need to understand out of the maybe 10 people or 15, 20 people that I've got, who are the two to three that are just absolutely amazed by what this is, what it does, what it solves for them. And then from there, profile them. So who are those people? Are they marketing leaders of agencies? Are they solopreneur consultants who target SaaS companies like myself? Are they, you know, mom and pop restaurant owners? Like who, who are these people? And I would aim to describe them in a way that imagine being able to pull a list of more of those people. Could you find more of those two to three people? 
And then from there, you're going to uncover, and this is assuming that you're actually talking to your customer on a regular basis. In the early days, you likely are constantly talking to them because you're trying to figure out, you know, you know, one, are they going to pay me more money? And two, <laughs> are they going to stick around? But you're really just aiming to pick those two to three. And then from there, they're likely going to look completely different. They're probably going to be in totally different verticals. If they do all generally look the same, then you probably have an inkling of product market fit. But from there, it's unpacking what channels do those people hang out in and where can you find more of them? And there's two ways that you can do this. And both of them require actually physically talking to the customer (laughs) or at least virtually. But the first way is ask them if they have any friends who are just like them. Do they have any colleagues or friends or, you know, people who they know who are in a similar boat, who have a similar pain? Do they know anyone else with this pain? That's the the first way. Asking them, who do you know who is like you, who experiences this too? They're likely going to come up with a few names. And they're also, if they're really emotional about it, and if they're, and I say emotional in a good way, like they really care about what this does for them, they will have no problem referring. Absolutely zero problem. The second way is to say, okay, so maybe they don't know anyone or maybe they're not comfortable naming any other referrals or making those referrals, but they likely participate in certain channels. So perhaps in order to find a solution like yours, they might've searched it, or perhaps they go to the same conferences every single year, or maybe they read the same, maybe like they're a restaurant owner and they always stay in touch with like these specific restaurant magazines or restaurant articles and blogs. I'm just totally shooting off the hip, but those are the kinds of channels that you can start to unpack and uncover. Once you unpack and uncover those channels, your next job is to try them out. (laughs) And what I find is, and this is, this is the hardest part about being a founder in those very early days when you're in the like 20 to 25 customer mark is not really knowing who to focus on. Again, number one job is to really just figure out who is really attached to what you've got and just pick two to three of those. I normally would say pick one, but I think that the reality is that you've got to explore the opportunities that you've got. And if you've got many different kinds of segments or personas coming into your product, you and and you're talking to them and they just look totally different, I would just try to figure out who are you solving the biggest pain for? And from there, figuring out how to get more of those people. And then when you hear channels, because you absolutely will, you're going to hear acquisition channels. I would test those. I would say, cool, well, what can I do to put myself in those channels and be in those watering holes? Because that's that's really where you get the next 10, 15, 20. And I will say by the time that you get to about 50 customers... By that point, you should have a pretty clear understanding of your value proposition, your messaging, and who you ultimately need to go after. From there, it's really doubling down, not on a channel, but on a segment. And I think that's a very clear, that's something that I want to make sure is very clear. I think there's a lot of talk about, oh, double down on channels. I actually think that that is a little misleading because doubling down on the channel is one thing. So like, let's say you double down on search or organic search or SEO, That's fine. Don't get me wrong. But I think what's more important is that you're really doubling down on a segment. And maybe that segment's primary channel is SEO. That's the difference. That's the step in between that I think it's so lost sometimes whenever you hear about growth stories. It's really about, well, I decided to double down on a segment. And whatever those channels come with the segment, you know, that that's just that is what it is but I'm focusing on this very specific part of the market and I corner that. 
that is much more approachable than like boiling the ocean. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Could you give us an example of what that segment can be based upon? Would that be a niche within a niche or like certain criteria of the like competitive product they're using, for example, or something like that? Qualifying the segment, there's a few different ways that we can look at defining what that segment looks like. It can be, I mean, it's it's based on the variables around, it could at least be based on variables around demographics. So maybe gender, uh, age, uh, it could also be location, the geographic side. And I think more commonly, we take a look at role industry. So are, are they, are they, you know, owners in small digital marketing agencies? Are they moms of at least two kids in the metro Atlanta area? I mean, the the way that you define and build segment is really dependent on your customer base. And one thing I do recommend for founders to do is to just take some time and really sit and think about the patterns in your really happy customers, or at least those really excited prospects. Maybe they're not paying yet. Maybe you're in that beta phase still. But take a look at the really excited people. What unites all of those people? And what doesn't, like what what actually makes them uh, separate? So a really great example of this in, um, in a client that I'm actually working with today is at first, they defined their market as, oh, well, we're really going after companies that have sales teams and, uh, you know, they, they're basically reaching hard to reach prospects. And that sounds really broad. It's just off the bat, like, okay, well, that, that market has got to be huge. As a marketer and even as a strategist, going after that, that sounds insurmountable. But when we dug deeper, what we really found was we've really got we've really got one amazing segment and a persona in that segment. And then we've got a few other segments that could be a uh, high potential or high opportunity. They're happy and they're paying, but this, there's this other segment, the primary one that really stands out. And the one that really stands out, we're actually looking at VPs of sales or CROs in technology companies or media companies that have sales teams of at least 10 people and those sales teams are targeting hard to reach prospects. So maybe the customer's customer is actually targeting like restaurant owners or agency owners or like lawyers, people who aren't naturally like on their computer all the time. Now that is a segment that is much more focused than what I said before, which was like, oh, we're targeting anyone with like a sales team and like, you know, yeah, like they've got this problem. That is how we define segment in that case. So if I were to go pull a list, let's say, of that, you know, perfect segment, that is actually doable. Like we could really take some time and like really carve out that market. And then some other examples. So these segments are also good for this particular company, but they're not, I wouldn't consider them the primary because there are some things that make them less ideal, but education. So looking at directors of IT and also even like presidents or managing, managing operators of schools, that could be a segment. They have an extremely similar use case to the primary one, but they're not the best fit for a few different reasons. And then there's also marketing agencies. So my personal experience going after marketing agencies is that it really does depend on the agency. And there's more than one kind of agency. There's so many different kinds of agencies. But we're really looking at full service, large agencies, at least 100 employees or more. And they have sales teams who run very specific services for a very specific clientele. That's kind of like the another like a secondary segment. 
but it's important to really focus on at least one. Uh, and I say at, at least, and really it should be at maximum. <laughs> but in the very early days, I think what you'll find is that when you're really focused on just one core segment, you're not closing your eyes to the others. You're not totally blind to the others. You're always looking for opportunities. But when, at least from a go-to-market perspective, you've aligned your resources around one primary segment, you're, you'll find that, that you're actually able to move the needle. In the early days, it's really easy to spread yourself too thin across too many different markets and segments all at the same time. And what you also find is that it feels scary to to trim and to maybe even pause on some parts of the market. But by doing that, you actually clear the path to really focus and double down on a few or even just one, if that's the case. Uh, especially for I, I recommend this, especially for bootstrappers, like if if it's really just like you, maybe a co-founder and then like a few part time or contractor freelancer people, I find that focus is your absolute best friend. And that's very true from a go to market perspective. So to recap it in plain English, so that make sure I understand correctly, the reason why you would do that is because it's going to be easier to tailor your messaging to them and to find places where you can reach them out in a more narrow way. So this way you can actually get in touch with them. Does that mean that you're going to have to like redo your marketing site entirely to fit this segment? Or is that focus all about your current marketing activities? No, absolutely not. So that is an excellent question. I love that you asked that. Typically what, what you do is, well, there's two things. And the first is that usually people, existing customers don't necessarily care about the words that happen on your website after they've already become a paying customer. Because to them, you're already you're solving their pain as long as you don't change uh, the product in any super impactful way, they really don't care about the message that's on the website. But that said, when you are, after you've maybe, you've won like one particular segment in a market and now it's time to go after the next, but you've noticed that your messaging is going to need to change to attract those people. What we typically see is the copy and the messaging on at least the homepage, it becomes I don't want to say broad because that's not the right word, but it it kind of levels up a little bit in terms of vision and you end up with a little bit more visionary copy and something maybe that doesn't necessarily speak exactly to one segment because th that absolutely will, depending on the situation you're in, it might turn off this new segment that you're trying to attract. So what I like to do is I like to open up the homepage a little bit more and then from there create more specific landing pages that talk to that segment that you're ultimately trying to talk that you're ultimately trying to attract and then send them to those landing pages instead of necessarily the homepage. We see marketing websites getting more robust as they start attracting different parts of the market. And that's very natural. And there are some who will absolutely disagree with this, but I don't know if you absolutely could try switching all of the copy and all of the messaging to focus on that new segment. And that probably could work, but it also could mean that the segment that you've already won, if you're still attracting people on that segment, then you might you might lose them that way too. So it, it's kind of a tough, tough gamble. But I typically like to look at it like, okay, cool. So maybe we've cornered cornered the market like on the in this place or in this niche or in this category. Maybe we need to expand our messaging a little bit, make the platform and the product a little bit more open, but still get into specifics around maybe persona or vertical from there. So maybe you in the beginning, maybe marketers were your bread and butter. 
but now you've learned, you've realized that you need to keep the marketers, but now you need to market to salespeople. So how do we, how do we have both of those people live under one roof? I find that usually your messaging, it speaks to both of those audiences both at the same time and then also individually in different places of the site. So that is usually what I, I kind of see happen. Thank you so much for clarifying because the contents of your homepage and the message in your H1, it's quite a puzzle for for what I've, I know about startups because you never know what is going to be the most attractive message and who exactly you should call out there in terms of the audience. So that's really, really helpful that you're breaking that down. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up for today. If you were to give top three mistakes that people are making in their early stage that prevent them from achieving that early growth and getting their first hundred customers, what would that be? The first is just hands down, never actually taking time to understand what is it that you're ultimately doing for your customer? What is the what is the real true pain that you're solving for your customer? When you understand that, you start to understand what that context is that you're in. And when you understand that context, that's that's when you can start making much better decisions around not only what you build, but about how you present your product to the market. That's the first. The second is it's and it's a double-edged sword, but it's the it's the balance between throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall and just executing on tactics blindly versus spending time really thinking strategically about what should you be doing, where should you be making investments and um, and where you're ultimately trying to go. Now, don't get me wrong. Execution, it is one of the biggest threats to an early stage company, whether you're a startup funded, whatever, not executing enough like that is a huge threat. But the smaller long-term threat that really that really pans out in like a few years, that's usually also strategy. That's where I playing that balance is very, very hard. And if you don't get it right, it could leave you frustrated and kind of, you know, scratching your head two years later, wondering, you know, what am I doing wrong? And I think that that's, that's kind of the caution to the wind I would throw. And I'll give you a third one. And this is really honestly about focus, spreading yourself way too thin in the beginning. The reality is that in the very early days, like the first five, 10, 15 customers, you kind of have to, but you will get to a point to where you are going to have to focus in order for you to, as I like to say, in Cardi B, make money moves. And if you want to make money moves, I find that that happens with focus, whether that's focus on a segment, focus on a channel or focusing on a really specific part of the funnel. So, you know, acquisition, activation, retention, focus is going to be your absolute best friend. And then after that, once you leverage focus to your advantage, then you can kind of spread your wings a little bit and start and start exploring other places. But I, I think that spreading yourself too thin in the early days and not focusing on something, I think that that hurts everybody. <laughs> but yeah, those are those are my three. And just one last question can help but ask, uh, are there any channels? We all know, know the traditional ones. Um, are there any channels that have been popping up lately that you've found to be surprisingly effective for some of your clients? As an example, I don't know, advertising on Quora or something in, in that regard, which is a little bit less mainstream than traditional Google ads or Facebook ads, for example. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's, there's two and they're, they're in a similar vein. And this is something that I admit I have not had enough time or even like the real use case, like to play around with these to, to a large extent, but I'm really excited. This is going to sound so dumb. I'm so excited about, uh, Gmail ads, ads in Gmail. They're, 
is something about them that no way. <laughs> yes. I know it sounds crazy, but I've I've been working with a few companies lately. One of the one of the things that unites them is just Google for business in general. Like they're all very small businesses. They're hard to reach. They're not really online. The best way to reach them would just really either be a phone call or just like visiting their mom and pop shop or restaurant or store. But one thing that unites all of them is that they all are like Google for business users, which means that they're using Gmail, which means that we can serve ads to them. And a lot of them aren't even like using the business like account. They're using just like my restaurant at gmail.com. <laughs> and this is really where the question kind of becomes around like, well, how can we realistically target and segment those people? You know, like I said, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but I'm actually really excited about using something like Gmail ads because, well, one, I've not really ever played around with it before. But two, that's a channel that could actually be extremely affordable. And from what I can see, it's like really cheap. But anyway, uh, the other one is something that I have had experience with, and that's paid newsletters. I am not always the biggest fan of paying immediately for traffic, at least in the early days. I like to try to figure out, well, how can we do this as cheaply and affordably as possible? And then when we feel comfortable with it, then we may be look at paid. But I will say that paid newsletters, that is something that I think a lot of us forget about because, you know, like we we think about Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all that. But a lot of us forget about even just like buying like sponsorships or buying placement in a organically curated newsletter and putting offering something there. And I find at least that if it's if it's a very targeted or if it's strategically at least chosen, that that could be an amazing way to drive not only eyeballs traffic, but generate leads, get people into the free trial. And the price tag I find is maybe what I think scares a lot of people. But I think if as long as it's a very specific offer and it's tailored to that newsletter's audience, it could be incredibly effective. Thank you so much for showing us around these opportunities. I'm sure there, there are more, but they're specific to everyone's business. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Asia. It's been spectacular to learn from you. And where can we learn more? Where can people find you online? Well, I am always on Twitter. So please find me at Asia Matos on Twitter. If that is your jam, also hit me up on LinkedIn if LinkedIn is more your jam. And then of course, there's demandmaven.io. And actually, especially for the listeners of the UI Breakfast podcast, there is a marketing strategy call that I offer. I think typically it's like 350 bucks or something like that. But you can actually get it for free with a very special promo code. Just use UI Breakfast and you can get a free marketing strategy call. Please come pick my brain. Come ask your burning questions about what should you be doing? Where should you be focusing on? And it does come with a deliverable, which is kind of like a steal. So yeah, you can find me that way too. <laughs> no way. I thought you're planning for a discount, but this is so super generous. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Of course. It is my pleasure. And I'd love to also just hear from the listeners because that's one of my favorite parts too, is just talking to people. We can see that being a charming, charming guest here. So thanks again, Asia. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you so much. You too. <laughs> 